Section 11 of Revolution and Other Essays by Jack London, published 1910. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Greg Giordano. Section 11 these bones shall rise again by jack london rudyard kipling prophet of blood and vulgarity prince of ephemerals and idol of the unelect as a chicago critic chortles is dead it is true he is dead dead and buried and a fluttering chirping host of men little men and unseeing men have heaped him over with the uncut leaves of kim wrapped him in stalky and company for winding sheet and for headstone reared his unconventional lines the lesson it was very easy the simplest thing in the world and the fluttering chirping gentlemen are rubbing their hands in amaze and wondering why they did not do it long ago it was so very very simple but the centuries to come of which the fluttering chirping gentlemen are prone to talk largely will have something to say in the matter and when they the future centuries quest back to the nineteenth century to find what manner of century it was to find not what the people of the nineteenth century thought they thought but what they really thought not what they thought they ought to do but what they really did do then a certain man kipling will be read and read with understanding they thought they read him with understanding those people of the nineteenth century the future centuries will say and then they thought there was no understanding in him and after that they did not know what they thought but this is over severe it applies only to that class which serves a function somewhat similar to that served by the populace of old time in rome this is the unstable mob-minded mass which sits on the fence, ever ready to fall this side or that, and indecorously clamber back again, which puts a Democratic administration into office one election, and a Republican the next, which discovers and lifts up a prophet today, that it may stone him tomorrow, which clamors for the book everybody else is reading, for no reason under the sun, save that everybody else is reading it. This is the class of whim and caprice, of fad and vogue the unstable incoherent mob-mouthed mob-minded mass the monkey folk if you please of these latter days now it may be reading the eternal city yesterday it was reading the master christian and some several days before that it was reading kipling yes almost to his shame be it these folk were reading him but it was not his fault if he depended upon them he well deserves to be dead and buried and never to rise again but to them let us be thankful he never lived they thought he lived but he was as dead then as he is now and as he always will be he could not help it because he became the vogue and it is easily understood when he lay ill fighting with close grapples with death those who knew him were grieved they were many and in many voices to the rim of the seven seas they spoke their grief whereupon and with celerity 
the mob-minded mass began to inquire as to this man whom so many mourned if everybody else mourned it were fit that they mourned too so a vast wail went up each was a spur to the other's grief and each began privately to read this man they had never read and publicly to proclaim this man they had always read and straight away next day they drowned their grief in a sea of historical romance and forgot all about him the reaction was inevitable emerging from the sea into which they had plunged they became aware that they had so soon forgotten him and would have been ashamed had not the fluttering chirping men said come let us bury him and they put him in a hole quickly out of their sight and when they have crept into their own little holes and smugly laid themselves down in their last long sleep the future centuries will roll the stone away and he will come forth again for be it known that man of us is imperishable who makes his century imperishable that man of us who seizes upon the salient facts of our life who tells what we thought what we were and for what we stood that man shall be the mouthpiece to the centuries and so long as they listen he shall endure we remember the caveman we remember him because he made his century imperishable but unhappily we remember him dimly in a collective sort of way because he memorialized his century dimly in a collective sort of way he had no written speech so he left us rude scratchings of beasts and things cracked marrow-bones and weapons of stone it was the best expression of which he was capable had he scratched his own particular name with the scratchings of beasts and things stamped his cracked marrow-bones with his own particular seal trademarked his weapons of stone with his own particular device that particular man would we remember but he did the best he could and we remember him as best we may homer takes his place with achilles and the greek and trojan heroes because he remembered them we remember him whether he be one or a dozen men or a dozen generations of men we remember him and so long as the name of greece is known on the lips of men so long will the name of homer be known there are many such names linked with their times which have come down to us many more which will yet go down and to them in token that we have lived must we add some few of our own dealing only with the artist be it understood only those artists will go down who have spoken true of us their truth must be the deepest and most significant their voice is clear and strong definite and coherent half-truths and partial truths will not do nor will thin piping voices in quivering lays there must be the cosmic quality in what they sing they must seize upon and press into enduring art forms the vital facts of our existence they must tell why we have lived for without any reason for living depend upon it in the time to come it will be as though we had never lived nor are the things that were true of the people a thousand years or so ago true of us to-day the romance of homer's greece is the romance of homer's greece that is undeniable it is not our romance and he who in our time sings the romance of homer's greece cannot expect to sing it so well as homer did nor will he be singing about us 
or our romance at all a machine age is something quite different from an heroic age what is true of rapid-fire guns stock exchanges and electric motors cannot possibly be true of hand-flung javelins and whirring chariot wheels kipling knows this he has been telling it to us all his life living it all his life in the work he has done what the anglo-saxon has done he has memorialized and by anglo-saxon is not meant merely the people of that tight little island on the edge of the western ocean anglo-saxon stands for the english-speaking people of all the world who in forms and institutions and traditions are more peculiarly and definitively english than anything else this people kipling has sung their sweat and blood and toil have been the motives of his songs but underlying all the motives of his songs is the motive of motives the sum of them all and something more which is one with what underlies all the anglo-saxon sweat and blood and toil namely the genius of the race and this is the cosmic quality both that which is true of the race for all time and that which is true of the race for all time applied to this particular time he is caught up and pressed into his art forms he has caught the dominant note of the anglo-saxon and pressed it into wonderful rhythms which cannot be sung out in a day and which will not be sung out in a day the anglo-saxon is a pirate a land robber and a sea robber underneath his thin coating of culture he is what is in morgan's time in drake's time in william's time in alfred's time the blood and the traditions of hengist and horsa are in his veins in battle he is subject to the bloodlusts of the berserkers of old plunder and booty fascinate him immeasurably the schoolboy of to-day dreams the dream of clive and hastings the anglo-saxon is strong of arm and heavy of hand and he possesses a primitive brutality all his own there is a discontent in his blood an unsatisfaction that will not let him rest but sends him adventuring over the sea and among the lands in the midst of the sea he does not know when he is beaten wherefore the term bulldog is attached to him so that all may know his unreasonableness he has some care as to the purity of his ways does not wish for strange gods nor juggle with intellectual phantasmagoria he loves freedom but is dictatorial to others is self-willed has boundless energy and does things for himself he is also a master of matter an organizer of law and an administrator of justice and in the nineteenth century he has lived up to his reputation being the nineteenth century and no other century and in so far different from all other centuries he has expressed himself differently but blood will tell and in the name of god the bible and democracy he has gone out over the earth possessing himself of broad lands and fat revenues and conquering by virtue of his sheer pluck and enterprise and superior machinery now the future centuries seeking to find out what the nineteenth-century anglo-saxon was and what were his works will have small concern with what he did not do and what he would have liked to do these things he did do and for these things will he be remembered his claim on posterity will be that in the nineteenth century he mastered matter his twentieth century claim will be in the highest probability that he organized life 
but that will be sung by the twentieth-century Kiplings, or the twenty-first-century Kiplings. Rudyard Kipling of the nineteenth century has sung of things as they are. He has seen life as it is, taken it up squarely in both his hands, and looked upon it. What better preachment upon the Anglo-Saxon and what he has done can be had than the bridge-builders? What better appraisement than the white man's burden? As for faith and clean ideals, not of children and gods, but men in a world of men, who has preached them better than he? Primarily, Kipling has stood for the doer as opposed to the dreamer. The doer, who lists not to idle songs of empty days, but who goes forth and does things, with bended back and sweated brow and work-hardened hands. The most characteristic thing about Kipling is his lover of actuality, his intense practicality, his proper and necessary respect for the hard-headed, hard-fisted fact. And, above all, he has preached the gospel of work, and as potently as Carlyle ever preached. For he has preached it not only to those in the high places, but to the common men, to the great sweating throng of common men who hear and understand, yet stand agape at Carlyle's turgid utterance. Do the thing to your hand, and do it with all your might. Never mind what the thing is, so long as it is something. Do it. Do it, and remember Tomlinson, sexless and soulless Tomlinson, who is denied at heaven's gate. The blundering centuries have perseveringly pottered and groped through the dark. But it remained for Kipling's century to roll in the sun, to formulate, in other words, the reign of law. And of the artists in Kipling's century, he of them all has driven the greater measure of law in the more consummate speech. Keep ye the law, be swift in all obedience, clear the land of evil, drive the road and bridge the ford. Make ye sure to each his own, that he reap what he hath sown. By the peace among our peoples, let men know we serve the Lord. And so it runs, from MacAndrew's law, order, duty, and restraint, to his last least line, whether of the vampire or the recessional. And no prophet out of Israel has cried out more loudly the sins of the people, nor called them more awfully to repent. But he is vulgar, he stirs the puddle of life, object the fluttering, chirping gentleman. The Tomlinsonian men. Well, and isn't life vulgar? Can you divorce the facts of life? Much of good is there, and much of ill. But who may draw aside his garment and say, I am none of them? Can you say that the part is greater than the whole? That the whole is more or less than the sum of the parts? As for the puddle of life, the stench is offensive to you? Well, and what then? Do you not live in it? Why do you not make it clean? Do you clamor for a filter to make clean only your own particular portion? And, made clean, are you wroth because Kipling has stirred it muddy again? At least he has stirred it healthily, with steady vigor and good will. He has not brought to the surface merely its dregs, but its most significant values. He has told the centuries to come of our lyings and our lusts, but he has also told the centuries to come of the seriousness which is underneath our lyings and our lusts. And he has told us, too, and always has he told us, to be clean and strong, and to walk upright and manlike. But he has no sympathy, the fluttering gentleman chirp. We admire his art and intellectual brilliancy. We all admire his art and intellectual brilliancy, his dazzling technique and rare rhythmical sense. But 
he is totally devoid of sympathy dear dear what is to be understood by this should he sprinkle his pages with sympathetic adjectives so many to the paragraph as the country compositor sprinkles commas surely not the little gentlemen are not quite so infinitesimal as that there have been many tellers of jokes and the greater of them it is recorded never smiled at their own not even in the crucial moment when the audience wavered between laughter and tears and so with kipling take the vampire for instance it has been complained that there is no touch of pity in it for the man and his ruin no sermon on the lesson of it no compassion for the human weakness no indignation at the heartlessness but are we kindergarten children that the tale be told to us in words of one syllable or are we men and women able to read between the lines what kipling intended we should read between the lines for some of him lived but the most of him died is there not here all the excitation in the world for our sorrow our pity our indignation and what more is the function of art than to excite states of consciousness complementary to the thing portrayed the color of tragedy is red must the artist also paint in the watery tears and wan-faced grief for some of him lived but the most of him died can the heartache of the situation be conveyed more achingly or were it better that the young man some of him alive but most of him dead should come out before the curtain and deliver a homily to the weeping audience the nineteenth century so far as the anglo-saxon is concerned was remarkable for two great developments the mastery of matter and the expansion of the race three great forces operated in it nationalism commercialism democracy the marshalling of the races the merciless remorseless laissez-faire of the dominant bourgeoisie and the practical actual working government of men within a very limited equality the democracy of the nineteenth century is not the democracy of which the eighteenth century dreamed it is not the democracy of the declaration but it is what we have practiced and lived that reconciles it to the fact of the lesser breeds without the law it is of these developments and forces of the nineteenth century that kipling has sung in the romance of it he has sung that which underlies and transcends objective endeavor which deals with race impulses race deeds and race traditions even into the steam-laden speech of his locomotives has he breathed our life our spirit our significance and he is our mouthpiece so are they his mouthpieces in the romance of the nineteenth-century man as he has thus expressed himself in the nineteenth century in shaft and wheel in steel and steam in far journeying and adventuring kipling has caught up in wondrous songs for the future centuries to sing if the nineteenth century is the century of the hooligan then is kipling the voice of the hooligan as surely as he is the voice of the nineteenth century who is more representative is david harum more representative of the nineteenth century is mary johnston charles major or winston churchill is bret hart william dean howells gilbert parker who of them all is as essentially representative of nineteenth-century life when kipling is forgotten will robert louis stevenson be remembered for his dr jekyll and mr hyde his kidnapped and his david balfour not so his treasure island will be a classic 
to go down with Robinson Crusoe, through the looking-glass, and the jungle-books. He will be remembered for his essays, for his letters, for his philosophy of life, for himself. He will be the well-beloved, as he has been the well-beloved. But his will be another claim upon posterity than what we are considering. For each epic has its singer. As Scott sang the swan song of chivalry, and Dickens the burgher fear of the rising merchant class, so Kipling, as no one else, has sung the hymn of the dominant bourgeoisie, the war march of the white man round the world, the triumphant paean of commercialism and imperialism. For that will he be remembered. Oakland, California, October 1901 End of Section 11 Recording by Greg Giordano Newport Ritchie, Florida